The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Friday was Dale's birthday, um, and I don't know if, uh, um, I don't know, I don't know if it's just like Thanksgiving season and I'm feeling sappy and I'm not really... um, even though I cry a lot up here when I'm talking to you guys, I'm not really like a super touchy-feely kind of guy. Um, so I guess it was kind of unusual. I was just thinking about Dale's birthday. We went out with, to dinner with him on Friday, and then he and I went out uh, yesterday. Our wives, our awesome wives, gave us up for most of the day on a Saturday to go see Coastal play. And so I'm blaming Dale that it was the first game that he's been to that they lost on that one. So... I take no credit for that, but it was it was a fun game, unless you were a Coastal fan, and it was a heartbreaking game there at the end. But I was just thinking about Dale and what a what a blessing it has been for him to be in my life. I didn't know Dale before we went to plant this church. He and I had never met. Uh, it, we love to tell the story. It was like a blind date that Jonathan Shank set us up on that went really well. And uh, in fact, it was like it's like a three wheel kind of thing. Like Jonathan invited Dale and me to McAllister's, and we sat down at a table. And he's like, "No, I'm not going to eat." And then like we talked for a couple minutes. And he's like, "Yeah, I got to get back to work. You guys have fun with this." And we sat there, and and then we're like, "Oh man, this is going to be weird." But then we were just kind of starry eyed as we started talking and sharing. And and uh, I don't want to make this sound too weird, but it I, I haven't had like I've click that quickly with another dude. I don't know if you guys, like, he's the other elder here at Doc Said, and just what a, a good guy that you guys have for an elder in him. And then that got me thinking about um, just the rest of the team of people that I get to serve with here at Doxa, that we've been on this journey now planting this church. And it's been a pretty cool thing to be a part of. Like, when Days where, I was, I was telling um, Stacy earlier this week, uh, days where uh, I have what's called a bread truck Monday, and that, I don't know if you're familiar with that phrase, but it's sort of days like as a church planter, as a church leader, where you wake up on Monday and you're like, wow, this is terrible planting a church. This is really, really hard. You know what I'd really rather do? I'd rather just drive a bread truck because you can just get in the truck and you deliver the bread to the store and you get back in the truck and you listen to your podcast or sports radio and you don't have to think about it anything. You don't have to deal with like Sunday morning, like the crowd was small or somebody said something bad about the sermon or so-and-so's fighting or I don't know what we're going to do and the nursery's running out of workers and all the things that are wrapped up in planting a church. And and on those days where I'm like, man, this is really, really terrible. Are we going to survive? What I do is I think about the other people that I have on the team with me and how awesome they are. And how not only are they awesome people, but how we covenanted together early on in this deal to say, we're going to share life together. We're going to not only serve together, we're not only plant this church together, but we're going to deeply share our lives together so that the people that, it is incredible, the people I serve with here, the people I come here and wake up early in the morning and come unpack the truck on a rainy Sunday morning and, I, and we running around beforehand and nothing's working right. The people I do that with are the people that I most love in the world, the people that I most want to be around. Dale and I will sometimes look at each other when we're packing up the truck and all you guys have left and it's just him and I and it's cold or it's hot and it's rainy and we just look at each other like, you know what? Even though this is terrible right now, there's nothing else I'd rather be doing than this because of the people that I'm doing it with. And not only because of that, because the people that we're doing it the one, the who, the capital W who 
that we're doing this for. You see, you and I, we get one shot to be the church. No matter how old you are in here, you might be young, you might be a teenager, you might be just still wet behind the ears like Tyson, or you might be one of the oldest person in the room. No matter where you are on your life stage today, you get one shot to be a part of the church. One shot. You get one shot to be a part of a community of people who share life together and live life on mission together. And the history of the church is when other people join together to do that, to worship God together, to share life deeply together, and to live on mission, that God does what you and I cannot do, and he shows up. And people who did not previously know him come to know him. And a community that was far away from him, like our community, even though there's a lot of churches in our area, Myrtle Beach is a community that is far away from him. There are people who are populate church or grew up in church who have no vital personal relationship with Jesus and there are people who are just at Myrtle Beach living the dream of the endless summer, just doing the deal, just kind of adrift. And what God does when we join together, he does what only he can do, he draws them to himself. And some of you here today have already experienced that. A year ago, two years ago, you did not know him. Your life looked very different, and today you are walking with him. Your life looks drastically different than it did a year or two years ago because that has happened in you, and we want that to happen in more and more people. We get one shot to see what could church be, what could a church and should a church be in the Grand Strand area in the 21st century. And that's why we're doing this series, Pretty Ugly Bride. Because in all its mixture of beauty and ugliness, the local church, the local church, this group of people, this church here that's gathered in this gymnasium in the corner of Myrtle Beach and every local church that's scattered throughout this community and across the world, the local church is the hope of the world. Because God has chosen the local church to be the vehicle that delivers his good news of all that he has done for you in Christ. And it's the group of people that when somebody from outside looks in the way that we live our lives together, the way that we relate to each other, the way that we live life differently than the people around us because of the who that we're living for, the capital W who that we're living for, when they look in, they see something that's markedly different. And that's what's so important about this text that we're in this week. Verses 12 to 20, you didn't get, know you're gonna get a chance to come to church and hear the word uh, uh, prostitute or sexual, sexual or sexual immorality today, did you? That maybe you did, maybe you looked ahead. I hope you did. This text is covering issues this week that if we don't get on board with as a church, what we're building here will never amount to much. No matter how big this group may get or how wide it may get, no matter how deep we get, no matter how many people gather in here, we gotta have hundreds of people in here, we could grow out of this space and need a larger space, but no matter how big or wide we get, it won't amount to very much. It won't amount to very much if we don't understand what this section is talking about. The church in the first hundred years or so, it was just a, if you think about it, it was, I've told you before, Palestine was really kind of the armpit of the world. Nobody really wanted to live in Palestine. 
it was kind of the forgotten area. Like it was a part of the Roman Empire, but it wasn't like a jewel in the crown of the Roman Empire. And this group of people, this seemingly a sect of Jews erupted after this man was reportedly resurrected from the dead and they didn't think about it very much. But all of a sudden, a, a couple of years passed, it spread, a few more years have passed and, and a first hundred years, like it has, it has encompassed the Roman Empire and is turning the place upside down. And so they want to know what is going on with this group of people and so they had some, some reports that they asked for and one of the guys that reported to the Roman emperor said, Here's what's different about the Christians. And he was trying to explain, like, why are they spreading as fast as they have? And he said, here's what's different about them. They are generous people. They share all that they have except their marriage bed. And so you had this group of people that sprung up all across the empire who all of a sudden they, they had this sort of interesting dichotomy at at the heart of who they were, that like in one way they were super generous and they would give literally the clothes off their back to the people that needed it. There are stories of when a plague was, uh, was rampant in the empire, like, like Christian, when, when people were leaving the cities because this, the plague was spreading, they would actually leave people that got this plague alone in a house, or they would actually literally throw them out the window or out the door to die because they didn't want the rest of the family to get the plague. The Christians would come, and they would care for the, for the people who were left in, the, in their street or left in their home to die knowing that they were likely going to get it as well and they would die. And Christians sacrificed their life and their health for their fellow man. But not only were they kind, but yet they also had this different kind of life that they were living. They, weren't, they, they didn't adhere to the, to the sexual norms that were surrounding them. And like our day, Different views had crept up here in the church at Corinth, and that's what Paul is seeking to address whenever he's writing this section. He's not just writing them to tell them, hey, stop having sex, stop paying prostitutes and going to them like that's bad. He, first of all, overall, he comes to them and says, there's a problem in your belief system that's causing you to act the wrong way. I'm not just trying to get you to act a different way. So I'm not getting up here this morning to tell you, hey, I want you to not sleep around or I want you to stop watching HBO or I want you to stop doing this or stop doing that or unplug the porn. Though all of that may be encompassing that the purpose isn't to stop you from doing certain actions. The purpose was to address the belief system that they had fallen into that caused a different type. Of, of actions on their part. There's a few different views that we see addressed here in this section. One of the views is, um, is the view of nihilism. Anybody familiar with that? You don't have to raise your hands. You just try to pr pr prove your neighbor like, hey, I'm super smart. I know what nihilism is. But at its, kinda, at its core, the, the philosophy of nihilism says that life doesn't have any inherent meaning in itself. That, that life is just, it is sort of centered on the idea that it can, you can get there a lot of different ways, but it sort of basically comes down to if you believe that creation is not created, that this world, this universe just is a mathematical or biological happenstance that just sort of happened and there's no greater power that is governing things or, be, or is looking over things or created things or started things or is upholding it by its power, then if you believe that, that it's sort of, sort of, a happenstance, then life has no inherent meaning. And if life has no inherent meaning, then what you and I do, does it really matter? No, 
Life doesn't matter. What you and I do doesn't matter at all if we believe that life has no inherent meaning. There's no established moral values. They're all abstractly contrived. Then another view is not just nihilism, but it's dualism. And it's sort of this idea that he's addressing this passage. We're gonna get there in a second, trust me. This sort of idea that this spiritual is, this was a Greek philosophy that had crept up um, for, a, for a while. It was a group called the Sophists. And they, they believed that the, the spiritual realm was a, the good realm. And then this earthly realm and this bodily realm, this fleshly realm, this physical realm that we are part of is inherently kind of broken and dirty and a lower level of existence than the spiritual. And that's not just like, that can come in a couple different philosophies. One way, it just comes in from some maybe uh, Eastern philosophies where we believe like there's the, the spiritual and then there's this world and we sort of transcend the spiritual, this physical world looking for some sort of nirvana. But it also creeps up in the church where we sort of think about like there's this sort of like heaven and God and he's holy and he's, he's beautiful, he's awesome, but this world is kind of broken and it's ugly and it's kind of dirty and one day we're gonna get to leave this world and we're gonna get to parachute out of here and we're gonna get to go to heaven to the real nice place that where heaven is the spiritual realm where things are good, but this here, this is kind of low and broken and dirty inherently. And then another kind of view that he's addressing here is the idea of moralism. And that is the idea that we must not be immoral. This sort of, this sort of moral code of good and bad. And this sort of idea is that I need to be more good than I'm bad. And if I can be more good than I'm bad, then I can be all right. And sort of, I have this sort of code of morality that so I can sort of know where I am at any given point. I'm on the wrong side of the moral line or on the good side of the moral line. It's sort of this idea that uh, whether I believe in, if I believe in God, then I believe that me being better than I am bad is somehow going to earn me some sort of credits with him. Or if I don't believe in God, it's like I believe that being better than if I'm better than I am bad, then I have a good reputation of the people around me. I'm an upstanding citizen. And Paul is coming against both of these ideas, and we're going to see how it plays out in our actions. Look at verse 12 of chapter 6. All things are lawful for me. Notice that's in quotation marks. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, in quotation marks again, but I will not be dominated by anything. We think that this phrase, all things are lawful for me, was probably a saying that had kind of caught on in the church of Corinth, where they took where Paul said, hey, you've been saved by grace. Anybody ever ran this sort of, if you're a Christian, you sort of ran this sort of in your head, you're trying to figure out how can I do this thing that I know I'm not supposed to do? And so you sort of run this sort of mental gymnastics in your head where you say, hey, God sent me by grace. It's, it, he forgave me and he will forgive me by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross for me. And so therefore, it doesn't really matter what I do. So I can do whatever I want because the blood covers it. The sacrifice covers it. I can run ahead and do whatever I want. All things have now become lawful for me. And that's why they were kind of running around saying to each other, all things are lawful for me. But then Paul says, but I will not be dominated. It's funny, isn't it, that often what you think that you're free to do. I'm talking about this mental gymnastics, like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna figure out, I'm, I'm, it's okay for me to do this. Like, God has covered it, God's forgiven me, or uh, 
what, however kind of mental gymnastics you take to try to, that thing that you want to do that you, for some reason, you know that you shouldn't, and you try to make the gentle, mental gymnastics to try to make it fit in your mind, like, okay, I'm gonna find a loophole in the system that I can, the reason I can do this, that the thing that you finally, if you finally come up with a construct, yeah, okay, this, yeah, God's grace covers it, I can do this, or however you get there, isn't it funny that the things that you think that you're free to do finally are the things that actually end up dominating you? The thing that you, that you think like, hey, I, I'm, I'm free to do this, so I'm free as a believer, I'm free as a Christian, like I can do whatever I wanna do, but isn't it funny that it's the thing that you end up thinking about so much? You're always trying to do the gymnastics you have to do in order to try to make it okay for yourself to do the things that you're doing. Hey, I'm free to do this, but you spend all your time first thinking about like, yeah, yeah, that's okay, that's okay. You spend all the time thinking about it and then that thing starts to dominate your thinking. You think, yeah, I'm free to sleep around with whoever I want to sleep around with. I'm free to do whatever I want to do. I can, I'm free to look at whatever I want to look at. It's better than actually going out and cheating on my wife or cheating on my girlfriend or doing whatever. Like, I'm free to do this, but it ends up being something that dominates your thinking. It slowly creeps in more and more. And that thing that you think that you're free to do, it's okay for you to do, ends up dominating you. Because the truth is that no matter how free you and I think we are, we are always enslaved. You and I are always bound to something. In America, we like to think like we're free, we have will, like I, we have freedom to do whatever I want to do, freedom of choice, I can do whatever I want to do with my life. But yet, we're all somehow bound to something. I'll share with you, it's been a while, I know it's been a while because it's news to some of you guys that I hate pot roast. Uh, I need to bring this up more and the reason I wanna bring this up more is in case anybody ever invites me to your house, I wanna take this opportunity to broadcast the fact that I hate pot roast and spaghetti and lasagna. And I know those are all great meals, they're all great dishes and the problem is like whenever you invite somebody to your house, what do you serve? You serve lasagna or spaghetti or pot roast because those are cheap meals, it's easy to feed a lot of people and I hate all, when I say I hate it, I mean I detest all three of those meals. Pot roast is way, I, I am convinced that pot roast will be the meal that's served in hell. I am convinced of it. I hated it from the very beginning. I remember as a child just loathing. I, and it's crazy because I love beef and I love potatoes and I love carrots and onions, but something when you put those all together and cook it for a certain amount of time that just the smell, the taste, the texture, all of that just absolutely drives me crazy. I cannot help it. I would like to like pot roast because it would make life a lot easier for meal choices in my house. I would like to like spaghetti and lasagna because that's what people feed you when you go to their house. I would like to like them, but I cannot bring myself to like them. I would like, I like sushi, like I like the safe sushi, like the, 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 the virgin level sushi, like I like that, like the, the kitty menu kind of sushi, I like that, but whenever it gets on the next level up and the next level up, I just can't bring myself to like it. I can't help it. 
I have detested fish. I'm a really picky eater. I detested fish since I was a very little kid, which is crazy because my granddad, who I loved and spent time with, loved to fish and loved to cook fish all the time. And I, I hate the texture and the taste, all of it. It just drives me crazy. I know I should like fish. It's healthy. It's good for me. I cannot bring myself to like it, no matter how hard I try. And no, I'm your lasagna and your fish is not the exception to the rule. Everybody said, you haven't tried mine, and I have. It's, I hate it. It's, I don't like it at all. I can't make myself like it. And we're kind of like that, aren't we, about a lot of things. There's some things that you just cannot help yourself. You like it, you do not like it. You and I are never truly free. I am at any point am free to go to the store and buy the ingredients to make pot roast or to go to a restaurant and have pot roast served to me and pay them money for it, which seems to me like a total waste of money and time. I am free at any, do I have the ability to choose any of those things? Absolutely. Am I going to choose it? No, because I am bound by a greater desire and drive that is deeper than my choice. And you and I are always bound by a greater desire. The question is, what is that desire? At the core, below your choices, what is it that's at work in your will to make you want or not want something? All things are lawful for me, but Paul said, I will not be dominated by anything. And then he says, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. We believe this was a, a saying in Corinth. And the, the people in the church of Corinth, and talking about this mental gymnastics we make, the people in the church of Corinth had sort of taken this sort of idea that, okay, the food is meant for the stomach and stomach is for the food. So the idea is sort of like, because I get hungry and I desire food, then I, then I should eat. It's an appetite, a drive, a desire that my body has that I should fill. And so whenever I'm hungry, then it's time for me to eat. And sort of the way they sort of translated was that it's sort of the same way that food is meant for the body and body is for the food. Then they sort of have made the jump like sex is meant for the body and the body is meant for sex. And so therefore, your desire, your drive, your appetite for sex is just like an appetite for food. Whenever you get hungry, it's time to eat. And you can eat whatever you want to eat and however you want to eat it. And just as whatever I'm in the mood for today, I'm in the mood for tacos. Tomorrow I'm in the mood for, I'm always in the mood for fried chicken. The next day I'm in the mood for hamburger, whatever in the mood, I'm in the mood for that day, like, I'm in the mood for that day. In the same way, like today I wake up, I'm in the mood for a blonde. I'll have a blonde today. Uh, tomorrow I'm in the mood for a brunette. I'll have a brunette today. I just, the, the appetite that is, that is at, as going inside me, it's there and it's meant to be filled with however I want to fill it, whenever I want to fill it. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. But Paul says something different. Because see, there's sort of two kind of classic views about sex. One is that sex is simply a natural appetite that is to be satiated. If I get hungry, I eat whenever I get, you know the word, whenever I get like, I want, I want, to, I want to have some sex, then I, I go out and have some sex, whatever it is, however I want to have it, whoever or whenever. And sort of that sort of idea is a product of nihilism and it's a product of dualism. 
Because if nihilism says that this world has no inherent meaning, there's nothing, no greater power that's governing who I am or what I'm supposed to do, then I can just do whatever I want to do. If I have an appetite, it is to be filled however I want to fill it. Or the idea of dualism says like, okay, this world is sort of a broken, messed up world, and, but God has saved me by his grace, and so I can do whatever I want to do with my body. And it doesn't really matter because God has saved me by his spirit. And that's dualism. That's not the idea that Christianity paints. But then there's another classic idea of view of sex, and that's where sex is necessary, but it's sort of inherently dirty and evil. You guys ever brought up that way? Your parents or people around you sort of painted the picture that hey, sex is necessary, like we have to procreate and we have to, you know, your father has to have sex every, every month or he just gets crazy. And, you know, so you have this sort of idea that sex is, in, is that the way your mother talked? It, that sex is inherently Sex is inherently bad or evil, but it's a necessary evil that we have to do. And that's a product also of another kind of dualism that says this world is kind of broken and messed up, but one day we'll be saved from this broken body and this broken world. But it's also a view of moralism. This moralism says, you know, that this sex is sort of a, a bad little demon. And if you, let, if you start to let sex out, then it's, it's, you give it an inch, it's going to take a mile. If you, if you ever give it, give it the light of day, it's going to want to run around and do all kinds of things, the sexual desire. So you've got to keep that kind of boxed up in a way because sex is inherently kind of dirty or evil. But to see the first view that sex is a natural appetite that's to be satiated, that view is rejected by this phrase here, the body is meant. Look at the next verse. Um, or the end of the verse, the body is meant for sex. The body is not meant, sorry. That changes the whole meaning. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. He says, so our body is not meant for that. Our body, the way, and we're gonna be talking about this, by the way, uh, we're gonna have a, a little mini-series inside this Corinthian series. We're taking a pause for Advent for the next four weeks, and then starting in January, we have a series on sex, singleness, and Marriage, And so we're going to be sending that series to Tyson every week. So just kind of priming him, getting him ready down in Tampa. <laughs> Have my own personal small group with him via, via Skype on this. But sex, singleness, and marriage, so, you know, be ready for that. It's going to be good. So we're not going to get too in detail about that. We're going to be stuff we can cover in there. But the body is not meant for sexual immorality. There's something happens when two people have sexual intercourse together where they are physically and somehow mystically kind of joined together. Have you ever run into an ex-girlfriend or boyfriend that you were just nothing else happened with? Like it may be kind of weird, but it's not, it depends on how much time has passed. It may not be crazy weird. You ever run across an old girlfriend or boyfriend where you were sexually active with? It's a totally different ball game. Something physically and mystically happens whenever we are joined with another person physically and our body is not meant to be joined with more than one person. It's just the way that we're made spiritually and physically and mentally. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. It's not just an appetite that's to be satiated. But the second view is rejected. But, for the, but the body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And, and listen to this. This is what fuels this sort of idea. This sort of this, it 
comes against this idea that this, this world, this body is kind of broken and inherently evil, and one day we're gonna like spiritually resurrect. This idea, it says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you guys, are you familiar with the story when after Jesus was raised and, and Thomas is doubting him? And what does, Peter, what does Jesus say to him? Like Jesus is like incredibly cool. Like he's able to walk through walls and stuff. So it's like stuff that you and I can't do, right? Like you and I can't do it. But yet he's not some like some ghost. What does he say to, to Thomas? He says, put your hand in my side. Whenever he goes and hangs out with the disciples by the, by the, the, the Sea of Galilee, they cook breakfast for him and he eats. He has a body. See, the resurrected body that you and I are gonna experience, the resurrection that you and I are gonna experience isn't just some spiritual body. This world was made good and holy by God. And whenever he comes again in the second advent, he's gonna make all things right. There's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth. This earth is gonna be reborn and remade and you're gonna have a body, your body will be physically reborn and remade. It's not inherently evil even though it may be broken by sin now. It's not inherently evil. You will have a resurrected body and that's why he says, but the body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You, your body that you live in now is now a pre-resurrection body. So that's why he goes in the next section and says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? See some of that physical, sexual joining with another person? I have a pre-resurrection body. How in the world can I take this pre-resurrection body that was bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ and now join that sexually with someone who it's not supposed to be joined with? How can I do that? Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. And this is obviously not just true with prostitutes. It's true with sexual relationships with anybody else outside of marriage. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You are joined to him. For Paul, the union of two people in sex was very real, a very real union. But also the union with the believer with Christ was a very real union to him. He's saying, you guys have forgotten your union to Christ, your union to Jesus. And that is what's causing you to view your relationships with other people loosely and lightly. The way that you view your body and your physical appetites and the way that you satiate those, the way that you feed those, the way that you set those at ease, the reason that you're loose and light with that is because you've forgotten that you are joined to Christ in a very real union. And then he says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What he's talking about here is he's saying that because you and I were bought with a price, we have to give up control to our bodies. We have to give up control to our lives. 
But for many of us, not being our own, it just seems unacceptable, doesn't it? Like something inherently in us as human beings, something inherent in us as Americans, like we don't wanna be told what to do. We don't wanna have anybody over us that's telling us what to do, that controls us, that owns us, that's over us. As we said before, you and I are always controlled by something. There's always a deep desire that is at work within us that we are slaves to. I cannot help that I hate pot roast. I cannot help certain drives and desires of the core being of who I am that determine the choices that I make. The question is, who are controlling our desires? Who's controlling them? What he's saying is, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are not your own. Listen to that. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are not your own. And if you're not your own, then who gets to determine how you think about sex or other appetites or your daily mundane life decisions? Who gets to to determine it? If you're not your own, whoever's in control, whoever's in charge gets to determine it. He says that we're not their own, first of all, because you are joined with Christ. You see that? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? He says because you are joined with Christ, you are not your own. This rejects the idea of dualism, that this world is evil, inherently broken, or bad in itself. But it says that God has united us to himself at great cost. And what Jesus was doing for you, if you're a believer in Christ today, Jesus was uniting you to God. He brought you into his family, and he made you. That, that word that it says when he says, that, do not... Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? That word there is the same idea that this finger is a member of my body and my arm is a member, it's a part of my body. Jesus has now, in some mystical and very real way, has joined you to himself. You are now one with Christ. You are not your own, for you are joined And then he says, you are not your own because you are filled. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? The picture there is the idea of the the Jewish temple pre-Jesus was the place that God had them build in Jerusalem where the thing that made it amazing, it's a beautiful building, it was a great building, it was one of the wonders of the world, but the thing that made the temple different than every other building in the world is what made the people of Israel and Judah different than every other people on the face of the world. It's that God's presence, God's spirit, God's power dwelt in the temple. And he says, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you have been filled with the Holy Spirit of God in just as a real way as God's Shekinah glory rested in the holiest of holies within the temple above the Ark of the Covenant. You are a carrier of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit of God. 
when something is going crazy and somewhere in the world, overseas, Asia, the Middle East, what the president will do is he'll order aircraft carriers into the area. Why does he do that? Because the aircraft carrier is sort of a mini Air Force base. That he can then take, all of a sudden, like, America may be way over here, the Middle East is way over here. All of a sudden, he takes these carriers that carry the, the firepower of the American military might, and he places it where it strategically needs to be so he can exert. They may not ever fly over the area. They may never, not, they may never drop a bomb, but he puts it over there to exert the power and might, the influence of the military of the United States of America in a particular locale. And Jesus Christ has made you a carrier of the Holy Spirit of God. To in your family, so in your crazy Thanksgiving meal this coming week, or in your workplace, that place that you're just like ready to clock out of at five or six or whatever time you get out of there, your neighbors who you don't really wanna to talk to, you're scared they're gonna look at you and get eye contact when you're on your way inside after work. The people that you work out with, your friends, your neighbors, he's made you a carrier to carry the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit himself into those situations. You are not your own because you are joined and you are not your own because you are filled. And that rejects this idea of nihilism because if you as a believer, if you as a person have been made to be a carrier of God's Holy Spirit into the places that you go, then life has great meaning. It has great purpose. If you and I are intimately in relationship with the creator of the heavens and the earth who, redeemed, who has redeemed creation and his presence himself is somehow in me and among us as believers, then our life has great meaning. You are joined and then you are filled and then you were bought. You see that? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God and your body. This rejects the idea of moralism that somehow that I can be good enough that counterbalances all the bad things that I've done. We understand that no amount of good things that I do can erase the, even if I had one blemish, it can't erase that one blemish. I was lost, I was trapped in my trespasses and sins. I was stuck. But God came and he paid the penalty that I was due, that I had due to him because of all the things that I had done that were bad. And he redeemed me from, that's the idea of this idea of purchasing, he bought you, he redeemed you. The, the meaning of the word redeem means to gain or regain possession of something in exchange for payment. And what it's saying is that Jesus' payment on the cross for you bought you out of sin, paid the debt that you owed, and that's how he purchased you to himself. You and I have been redeemed from sin We've been redeemed to God, and we've been redeemed for God. Look at that. For you were bought with a price. You are not your own. So glorify God 
in your body. He redeemed you from sin. He redeemed you to himself. And he redeemed you for himself. So what does that mean as we end? It means that who redeemed you and what he redeemed you to and what he, why he redeems you must have great bearing on our everyday thoughts, words, and actions. If you're, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe you've grown up in church but you've really lived this idea of moralism, like I'm gonna be more good than I'm bad and that's somehow gonna get me over the hump. Or maybe you've just been far away from God for a long time. The question is, how will you respond to the great price that was paid for you? He redeemed you at great cost to himself. How will you respond? If you're a believer this morning, we hear Paul's encouragement and call to us not to become lazy and to fall into other philosophies, thinking that this world is somehow what happens here doesn't really matter because God has saved me or this world doesn't really have meaning or uh, the sort of idea that I can be moral enough. And if you, you, you and I are falling into those philosophies, then we need to repent this morning. The same thing here if you're a believer, and you're struggling. Understand that you're probably struggling because you've fallen into a different kind of philosophy about what life is about. And this morning, I invite you to remember what Christ has done for you and how he has redeemed you. And if you're a believer, how he has filled you. And how, if you're a believer, you've been joined to him. Remember that and repent. So therefore glorify God in your body, in your appetites, in your energies, in your mind, and in your words, in your actions. Glorify God in your body and in your life. I'm gonna pray and then band's going to play or Jamin's going to play just for a moment. Give us a chance to think and reflect and if we need to repent, if we need to remember what he has done for us and the immensity of what he has done, that he has called you to be a, a temple of the Holy Spirit, a carrier of his presence and power to the world around you because you've been joined, you've been filled, you've been bought, you've been redeemed. So if you just need to remember that, remember that. And then Jonathan's gonna come up and offer communion to us. It's a great chance for us to remember the redemption. Father, I thank you so much for uh, the goodness and the grace that you've shown to us in Jesus Christ. God, I thank you that life has great meaning, has great purpose. It is not a waste. What we do here matters because we have been joined with you, we have been bought by you, and we've been filled by you. Father, I pray if there's any person here who has never bowed their knee to you, confessed you as their Lord, repented of their sins, and accepted the purchase price that you paid for them, that they would bow their knee this morning.
that for the believers here, you would help us to remember and to repent and to respond with a gratefulness that we get to be carriers of your presence and your power, that we've been redeemed. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.